0: This is God's words from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty act. and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your sins shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all. Generations.
1: Thank you, Rena. Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing today? You guys, good. Two people are good. Are you guys good? My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet met, really excited to be going through this sermon series called "Teach Us to Pray." We are in week three. On week one, we looked at uh, our Father in Heaven. Week two, we looked at Hallowed Be Your Name, and today we're going to turn our attention to Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done, on earth as it is in heaven. And what we've been doing each week, in addition to reading from the Psalms and seeing how uh, the, the psalmist would pray to God. We've been saying the Lord's Prayer together as a church. And so what I'd like to do is invite you to stand, if you would. We're going to read the Lord's Prayer together. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the teaching for today. And again, just uh, by way of reminder, if there's anybody here who's new, if you're visiting, uh, we are doing this from the English Standard Version. But if somebody slips into King James English, we're not going to judge them at all. So that's, that's our solemn promise and pledge today. Let's pray this together. You guys ready? Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, we come before you today uh, fully acknowledging and aware that there is much brokenness in the world. God, there are things that are not Right, and there are things that are out of line with how you want your good world to be ordered and you want your good world to be ruled. And so, God, today we do pray would your kingdom come and would your will be done in greater measure here on earth, just like it is done in heaven? God, would you use us, those who are your children, God, would you use us to be about the spread of the work of your kingdom? And would you teach us today the truth from your word how we can not only pray for your kingdom to come but live out kingdom lives? God, would you guard my lips? Help me to only teach that which is your truth. And God, give us all soft and receptive hearts that we might be changed and grown to look more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Everybody said, amen. All right, church, you can have a seat. April 12th, 1961. Uh, I'm not gonna have anybody raise their hands and say if they remember that date or not, but April 12th, 1961. Does anybody off the top of your head know what happened on that date? No? Yeah. You know? Had you had a birthday. Okay, that's great. <laughs> you, that's exactly what I have in my sermon notes. That's perfect. Thank you, Pam. April 12th, 1961 was the first manned space flight into outer space. Uh, a, a Soviet cosmonaut named Yuri Gagarin, who was 27 years old at the time, was the first man to spend time in outer space. It was a 108-minute long space flight. And this was in 1961, so it's the height of the, the Cold War, the tensions between the Christian United States of America and the Soviets, the atheistic Soviet uh, Union. And, and this was the height of, of the, arm, the space race, I should say, between uh, those two nations. And this was a, a massive win for the Soviets. And they began to put Yuri forward as a national hero. And he's the, the perfect Soviet. And he's uh, just this triumphant world changer. And he was raved about and he was bragged about so, the government started putting out these press releases. And, and one of the things that they said in the press releases was, was that when Yuri made it into outer space, he looked around and said, I don't see God. There's no heaven up here, there's no God. And that was put out as, as an official statement. The interestingly enough, Yuri was, if you do some research, you read any biographies on him, he was a baptized member of the Russian Orthodox Church. And according to most accounts, he was actually pretty devout. He practiced his faith sincerely, although he kept it quiet because of Soviet persecution of Christians. Also, interestingly enough, if you look through the records of the transcripts of that 108-minute flight, there's no record of him saying that. It it seems that this was maybe a later addition to the records uh, as a propaganda that was an anti-Christian sort of a propaganda. But, But either way, Whether he said it or whether he didn't say it, it made its way around the world and became a pretty famous quote. And the point is this, that in in the 1960s, during the height of the the new space age, a new age of science and a new age of exploration, isn't it now backwards and old-fashioned and anti-science to really think about heaven? We just got into a spacecraft, we went up into the sky, we left the earth, and There was no heaven. There was no uh, landing zone. There were no pearly gates where we could dock our spaceship. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says in this part of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I would submit to you that the quote, whether it came from Uri or not, the quote is a misunderstanding about what the Bible teaches about heaven. And I would also submit to you that many of us, even those who believe the Bible, many of us who are Christians have many misunderstandings about heaven. Be honest, maybe raise your hand. How many of you have ever felt a little bit confused about what the Bible teaches about heaven? It's a little bit of a confusing subject. It's kind of hard to speak about uh, in terms that are very precise because we don't exist in that realm. But let me just start as we unpack this portion of the prayer. Let me just start by answering that question. What is heaven? I'll try to keep this as simple as possible. Heaven is where God is fully present in glory. Heaven is God's realm. Heaven is God's domain. And the Bible teaches that God is present everywhere at all places at all times. We call that his omnipresence. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. However, there are certain places and there are certain times where God especially manifests or especially shows his presence in a greater way. For example, in in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about when two or three of my disciples are gathered in my name, there I am with them, there I am among them. Or sometimes when God's people would get together and sing, you can see stories of this in the Old Testament in particular, they would sing and they would pray and they would worship. It said that God's presence uh, came in a very strong and a very powerful way. We can still experience that sometimes when we have a prayer time or when we're by ourselves alone with God, uh, where his manifest presence shows up. But the place where God's presence is its most concentrated, is its most pure, undiluted in any way, is in heaven. And if I can say it this way, at the risk of sounding a little bit too science fiction-y, heaven is God's dimension. Heaven is God's realm. It's his domain. In the Bible, it's described as God's throne room. It says in Psalm 11, for example, that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. It means God's, God's in heaven and he can view his whole creation from there. Or Psalm 20 says that, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer from his holy heaven. He will answer from his holy heaven, meaning that heaven is not a place where you can travel to in a spacecraft, but heaven is God's domain where he rules and he exercises his wise authority over all of creation. I like the way that uh, N.T. Wright puts it, a biblical scholar This is part one of two quotes from him. He says this, we need to sort out the familiar but technical terms. Trying to make this as easy as possible to understand. Heaven and earth are two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Heaven is God's space where God's writ runs. That's a good English phrase I've never used before, right? Uh, You can use that at community group this week. God's writ runs means his authority uh, rules and where God's future purposes are waiting in the wings. And the earth is our world. He's in our space. No, sorry. Earth is our world. That's our space. And the two, I like that phrase interlocking. There's, there's places where heaven and earth uh, meet. And most ultimately, heaven and earth meet in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the one who is both God and man. Heaven is also a place where God's will is done perfectly. There is no sin in heaven. There is no rebellion in heaven. In fact, if you read uh, the Bible, there was an angel who was a part of God's uh, company of angels who rebelled, known as the devil, known as Satan. What happened when he rebelled? Got kicked out. God cannot dwell with sin. God cannot dwell with rebellion. So Satan was cast out of heaven because in heaven, God's will is done Perfectly. So heaven is where we see the full glory of God. Heaven is where we see the perfect will of God done. I want to briefly, before we turn our attention, to really look at this phrase, your kingdom come and your will be done, I want to just briefly recap because as we've seen throughout this Lord's Prayer series, Jesus is teaching us a model of prayer and it builds upon itself. And so the first week we looked at the phrase, our Father in heaven, and we really unpacked the idea that the prayer, our Father in heaven, is all about the gospel of adoption that we who were once far off, we who were once orphans are brought near, we're brought into the family of God through the blood of Jesus. And we get to be called sons of the most high God. We get to be called daughters of God. We get to be called co-heirs with Jesus. And so when we pray, our prayer life should begin with thanksgiving about the gospel and praying about uh, God's saving grace being given to others who are not yet adopted into his family. From that, we move into our, our Father in heaven. We move into hallowed be your name, which is a praise. It's worship. This attitude of adoption moves into adoration and we praise and worship him. And we begin to remind ourselves that before we begin to make petitions, we want to praise him. I actually personally had an opportunity this week to put that into practice. It was very challenging for me, and it was very encouraging for me. had some circumstances. I had a variety of different things, but one of which just being some sick kids in the house. And so I move into just praying, God, would you heal these kids? And, And I was reminded of what we looked at last week, that before we begin to petition God, let's just praise him and thank him for who he is. And it was challenging for me, and it was encouraging for me, and I hope it was for you as well. And now we're finally ready to bring our requests before God. We're going to turn the corner to start asking God some things. But you know what's funny, interesting, that before we begin to ask God for things we want, the prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done. We're going to start to petition God, but we're already still combating selfishness that we're so prone to, not just in our prayer lives, but in our lives in general. So we're going to pray for God's kingdom to come. And if there's confusion about heaven, there's also a lot of confusion about God's kingdom. And so I want to just explain to you what the Bible teaches about God's kingdom. Now, simply put, God's kingdom is the rule and the reign of God. It's the rule and the reign of God. It's where God is in charge. It's it's God's perfect reign in heaven spreading throughout the whole earth. God's kingdom is where God has his way through Jesus and through his people. There's a biblical scholar, R.C.H. Lenski. I like how he puts it. He says this, this kingdom is the heavenly reign and rule of God through Christ in the gospel of grace. Where Christ is, there this kingdom and rule is. And I like this part, of course, also those who through him participate in the blessings of this rule and kingdom. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you're a part of God's kingdom? Did you know if you're a Christian that your allegiance to that kingdom is higher than any other kingdom? Did you know that kingdoms, nations, come and go? They rise and they fall. It is the pattern of history for kingdoms to rise and to fall. But if we go back into Psalm 145, what we just looked at a minute ago, what we just heard read, it concludes with this, verse 13. It says, "'Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, "'and your dominion endures throughout all generations.'" Church, listen, I am fully convinced that should Jesus not return uh, for, for many years to come, that there will be a day when there is no more United States of America, at least not in the way that we know it. However, should Jesus not return and the United States of America goes away, you know it will still exist? The kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God is a dominion that endures throughout all generations. And just by way of a side note, let me just remind you that the kingdom is ruled by Jesus, our King. And in our nation, the United States of America, and all of the nations of the world, kingdoms are ruled by politicians. <laughs> and as we enter into election season, First of all, just brace yourself. The next year and a half is gonna be awful, okay? Jesus rules over the kingdom of God. Politicians rule over the kingdom of man. It's kind of like, it's not even apples and oranges. It's, it's bad comparison. But here's the deal. We are instructed as Christians to do what for our leaders and those in authority? To pray for them. So when we pray about the kingdom of God, your kingdom come, your will be done, We need to pray for our leaders and for all those who are in authority. Here's a a tip, right? It's uh, every time that you see Donald Trump's terrible hair come on the TV for the next year and a half, pray for our leaders. Pray for those in authority. Pray that they would be led by God's Spirit. Pray that they would make decisions that are wise and are in line with God's kingdom. Pray for your leaders Uh, And this is, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else. Let's not just be annoyed over the the political climate that we're about to go into. Let's pray. Because at the end of the day, whoever is president, whoever is governor, whoever's senator, our king is still Jesus Christ. And nothing can change that. Amen? And it doesn't matter whether you'd vote for that person or whether you would even talk to people who did vote for that person. We're still instructed, commanded by God's word to pray for them. Amen? That one's free of charge. All right, number two about God's kingdom. I want you to understand that sin cannot be a part of God's kingdom. Just like God cannot have sin in his heavenly domain, that, that heaven is perfect and free from sin, sin has no place in God's kingdom. Now, let me, let me explain um, this to you by way of an analogy. A few weeks ago, when we talked about the gospel, we talked about how we're saved, how we become Christians. I used the analogy of adoption, That we who were once far off are now brought near and we're adopted into the family of God and we're given a a home, we're given a father, we're given an inheritance, we're given all of the riches of heaven. And that is a 100% biblical and a 100% true metaphor. There's another very important biblical metaphor, and it's that of, of war and a battle between kingdoms. Did you know that? So when the Bible speaks of the gospel, the Bible would speak of God as being a king who created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that we see and he placed a man and a woman into the garden to rule over it like like governors, like stewards, like those who would uh, be his ambassadors to to steward the earth that he had made. And God gave them a commandment and said, I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it. I want you to exercise dominion. But Satan came and tempted the woman and and she was with her husband and he abdicated his place of, of leadership and they both sinned against God and they ate the forbidden fruit that they were not allowed to eat. And ever since that day, the story of humanity has been one of a rebellious insurrectionist tribe setting up a kingdom that is in opposition to the one true king who rightfully rules over heaven and earth. I had a Old Testament professor say, it is not an unfair and unbiblical way to speak of the gospel as surrender or die. God has a right to rule over the kingdom that he created. And he has a right and he has the ability to absolutely rain down judgment upon us and wipe us off the face of the map because apart from Christ, we all have been participants in this rebellious kingdom. Now the good news comes. We have a God who is so gracious. We have a king who says, no, I don't want to wipe out my enemies. No, I want to redeem them. I don't want to destroy my enemies. I want to save them. I want to forgive them. I want to heal them. I want to cleanse them. I want to wash them. I want to bring them in. And yes, I want to adopt them and make them part of my kingdom. As Colossians 1 says that he transfers us out of the domain, out of the kingdom of darkness and brings us into the domain of his beloved son. And in him, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. That's good news, church. That apart from Christ, we're part of a rebellious tribe and God could wipe us off the face of the earth. And he says, no, I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. For those of you who are not Christians, I need you to understand something really important. There is no such thing as spiritually neutral. When it comes to this this conflict of kingdoms, there is no spiritual Switzerland. Switzerland. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're a part of the kingdom of darkness. And what's worse, in the kingdom of darkness, you're actually a slave and you're a captive because the kingdom of darkness is led by the enemy of our souls, the one who hates us, the one whose mission statement is to steal, kill, and destroy. And today the invitation stands as wide open as it ever has. Leave that kingdom. Come join the the kingdom of God. Come join the kingdom of grace. Come join the kingdom of his son, the one who doesn't destroy his enemies, but dies for his enemies. The one who dies on a cross and lets his blood be poured out, his body be broken so that he could pay the price for our sins. The one who rises again to prove that he has all power and all authority in heaven and earth. And because of that, we don't serve a dead religious founder. We serve a living savior and a living and active and present king. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. It's wide open. God stands before you today. And I'm here to communicate that message. Would you renounce that enemy kingdom and be a part of the kingdom of God? And you can't just play spiritually neutral. It's it's in or out. It's either or. Number three, I want you to see about God's kingdom is that it's breaking into earth. There's this verse in in Hebrews that uh, talks about how when Jesus was, was crucified and when he was raised, God put him in charge of everything. And now it says, everything has been made subject to Jesus. He's in charge of everything. There is nothing that he is not in charge of. But in the very next breath, the writer of Hebrews says, at this present time, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. It's kind of like saying, well, Jesus is in charge of everything, but sometimes it really looks like there's things he's not in charge of. How many of you know that even though the kingdom has come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there are still many areas of brokenness in our world? God's kingdom is spreading. God's kingdom is growing. Jesus spoke of the kingdom as growing like a big tree and it takes time, but as the branches grow, it says all the, the birds will gather into its branches as the people from the nations will gather into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not here. The kingdom of God is already present, but it's not yet fully present. Do you guys feel that tension? Do you guys understand that tension? And, and, and I would say this, God's kingdom is not somewhere that we float away and go off to. No, the story of the Bible is that God's kingdom is coming to earth. I like the way this is part two of a quote from N.T. Wright, that scholar I was quoting a minute ago. It says, Think of the vision at the end of Revelation. It isn't about humans being snatched up from earth to heaven. No, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to earth. God's space and ours are finally married, integrated at last. And that is what we pray for when we pray, thy kingdom come. God's kingdom is coming. But there are enemies. There's resistance to God's kingdom coming. The three main are the world the flesh and the devil. Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead in trespasses and sins. It says that we were following the course of this world. Following the course of the world. The world means the systems, the structures, the powers, the authorities that are in place that are resistant to God's wise rule. How many of you know that there are kings and there are rulers and there are uh, authorities in place right now that are absolutely opposed to God's righteous rule? There are, pe- there are people and, and, and systems in place that are fundamentally opposed to the way that God would rule things. That's the world. And then it says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that referring to? Who's that referring to? That's Satan the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So so not only is the world opposed to God, but the devil is the ringleader. He is fundamentally opposed to God. He's absolutely opposed to God's wise and gracious and loving rule, God's kingdom coming to earth. But the apostle Paul continues, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. (laughs) Here's what this means. This means when we sin or when we we do things that are out of line with God's kingdom, we don't just get to say, the devil made me do it. We don't get to just say, oh, the world, I was just caught up in the structures of the systems of the world. No, we all, apart from Christ, have this fleshly sin nature that wants to be gratified by sinful things. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. Your identity is fundamentally changed. However, as a saint, you still have an old man. You still have flesh. You still have remaining sin that needs to be put to death by the power of the Spirit. Amen? There are no perfect people in this room right now, okay? If you were a guest and were just wondering, I can affirm, I don't know everybody in this room, but I will tell you there are no perfect people in here. We're all works in progress, growing in God's grace, being, being sanctified, being changed by him, putting this flesh to death. But when we talk about God's kingdom coming, we need to remember that we, in and of ourselves, have Parts of our heart, parts of our lives that still resist God's righteous rule. We resist his kingdom. It's not just the world. It's not just the devil. It's our flesh. But number five, ultimately God's kingdom will be perfect. 2 Peter 3.13 says, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me ask you this question. Can you imagine a world without cancer? Can you imagine a world without without degenerative disc disease? Can you imagine a world without diabetes? Can you imagine a world without broken marriages? Can you imagine a world without broken promises? Can you imagine a world where people truly acted not out of selfishness and self-interest, but out of love, generosity toward one another? It's, it's almost too far-fetched to really grasp onto, right? Like it sounds good, but our world is so broken. Just this past week, one of our staff members, their daughter was in the hospital with pneumonia deep down in her lungs. That's not part of God's eternal kingdom. It's not gonna be that way forever. Just this past week, I got news that a friend of mine has been married for less than one year, just lost his wife in a car accident. It's tragic. That is not going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom. In God's eternal kingdom, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. That's God's plan for this world. That's God's plan for the joining together of heaven and earth. So you ask questions, what's broken? What's, what's incomplete? What's not lined up with God's perfect will? What, what's not exhibiting the fruit of the spirit? You know, Love, joy, peace, patience. And number six, lastly, I want you to know that the church is an expression of the kingdom. The church is not equivalent to the kingdom, but the church, God's church, God's people, is an expression of the kingdom. Meaning, if we were really living how God has called us to live, people would get a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, right? Let me, let me read this quote to you from uh, scholar Craig Keener. He says this, "'We who believe that God's kingdom has invaded history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth must exemplify his reign in our own lives in the present. The world around should be able to look at how God's people treat one another and see what heaven is like, so much so that they want to have a share in that future kingdom that we live out among them in this age.'" What if people saw a community gathering around to take care of somebody who was was an orphan or gathering around to pay the bills of somebody who had uh, been through financial ruin? What if the, the, the people of the world saw that when person A really offended person B, person B went back to them with forgiveness and person A came back to them with all sorts of repentance? They would see that and they would say, that's different than how things are in the world. This church community, this people of God, it just looks different because the way of the world is cutthroat. The way of the world is get ahead by any means possible. The way of the world is you'd better share and help. And if you don't, we're gonna shame you publicly for not sharing and helping enough. Isn't that weird how that gets with charity? Like if you don't do enough charity, the way of the world is to shame you and make you feel bad about not doing enough to help people. Isn't that weird? Like they take a, a biblical, a Christian idea and then attach all sorts of ungodly, non-kingdom stuff to it think about that. What if our church, what if Sound City Bible Church grew in the fruit of the spirit, grew in submission to God's will, grew in being an expression of the kingdom of God so much so that people saw that and they said, I want to be a part of that. I'm not judged. I'm loved. I'm not coddled. I'm challenged. Wouldn't that be amazing? What if, what if, Other churches that you guys know, family members' churches, friends' churches, what if they were like that too? What if throughout the whole world, the the billions and billions of people who call themselves Christians started to live out God's kingdom purposes in their lives and in their churches? Wouldn't that be remarkable? The church is not equivalent to the kingdom of God, but it is an expression of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is the king. We're members of this kingdom. That's what the kingdom is. But I want to focus in for just a minute on the part that we play in the resistance to God's kingdom, I do want to focus in on our flesh. I want to focus in on the part of the prayer that says, your will be done. Because if we were being honest, there are times when God's will being done is not our first choice. (laughs) Do I get an amen from anybody on that? There are times when having God's will done is uncomfortable for us. I'll read you this quote from Eugene Peterson really struck me this week. It says this, um, he says, the great weakness of North American spirituality is that it's all about us fulfilling our potential, finding our gifts, getting a handle on principles by which we can get an edge on the competition. And the more there is of us, the less there is of God. We could pray your kingdom come, and there's a way that we could even do that selfishly. Amen? Amen. We could could pray that prayer selfishly. God, I want your kingdom to come because I'm kind of miserable and I want to be happier. I want your kingdom to come because those people are not living your kingdom purposes. No, no, God says, let's look at our own hearts. Let's look at our will in submission to his will. And so I want to just briefly unpack, what is is God's will? We talk about God's will. This is a really important question to, to ask, a really important question to answer because when we speak of God's will, we need to know what we're talking about. You may not have thought of this before, and so I want to just walk through this quickly because there's more I want to say, but the Bible speaks about God's will in a couple of different ways. When the Bible talks about God's will, it doesn't always speak about it in the same sense or in the same context. One of the ways that it speaks about God's will is God's will of decree or his eternal will. Um, Sometimes the Bible calls this his secret purposes or his secret will. And the good news about this, when the Bible talks about God's will in this sense, it can't be thwarted. Let me give you an example. In Ephesians, it says that God, before the foundations of the earth, chose people to love and save and redeem and to send his son Jesus to die and rise again so that they could be saved and spend eternity with him. That is God's eternal purpose. That is God's will of decree. Is there anything that we can do to mess that up? Not a darn thing. You guys could leave and go sin the worst you've ever sinned all year this afternoon, and that will still be God's will, and you didn't mess it up at all. The second way that the Bible speaks of God's will is his will of desire, or we could simply just call this his commanded will. The things that he says he wants us to do, and the things he says that he doesn't want us to do. Ten commandments, for example, you know, honor your father and mother. You shall not commit adultery. That is God's will of desire. Those are the things that he commands. And how many of you know that those are broken every single hour of every single day? God's will is that we would not sin. God's will is that we would not break his commandments. But unfortunately, this aspect of God's will is broken all the time. The third way that the Bible speaks of God's will is God's will of direction. His guidance, his, his individual plans for our lives, the, the choices we're supposed to make, the decisions we're, we're supposed to make, the, the things we're supposed to invest our lives in. But you know what's interesting about God's will of direction? You cannot find a Bible verse that says, yes, Johnny, you should marry Susie, not Sally. There is no Bible verse for that. You know what the Bible says about God's will of direction? Proverbs sixteen nine says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. Do you know what that, I'm going to paraphrase it. You know what that means? Start walking and let God just kind of nudge you in the direction that he wants you to go. It's like, it's like when you take your kids to the fair, right? Any of you ever taken a small child to the fair and not developed a drinking problem? No, I'm just kidding. If you ever take a small child to the fair You can say, okay, let's go look at the the pigs. We're going to go walk over to the pigs. And the kid starts walking. They get about four steps in. Like, but now I'm going to go look at this trash can. And they start walking four more steps. And now I'm going to go look at this. And you're just kind of nudging them. You're kind of, it's almost like herding cats, right? You're just kind of tapping them. No, not this way. Not that way. Yes. It's kind of like that with us and God. God's giving us constant guidance, constant direction. We're trying to go somewhere. He's leading us there and we trust him. Our job is to not obsess over this, to know God's, revealed will. How many of you know that we can focus too much on that third aspect and not enough on that second aspect? We can get obsessed with, God, what's your will for my life? Should I wear my red shirt today or my blue shirt today? And God's saying, you pick. This is why I created you with a brain, right? But sometimes we don't ask enough, God, what's your will in my life in terms of putting sin to death? What's your will in my life for giving glory to Jesus? God, what's your will of decree? What should I just rest in and have confidence in? You know, with God's will of decree, we should just have confidence. With God's will of desire, we should have obedience. And with God's will of direction, we should prayerfully practice wisdom. Let me just say this to you also. Um, When sometimes people talk about, can I know God's will? How can I know God's will? I want to just say two things. I want to ask that question because this is a natural outflow. The first thing I would say is when we talk about can I know God's will, we need to remember which aspect of God's will we're talking about. If you are wondering if you should uh, be sexually active with somebody who is not your husband or your wife, the answer is no. The Bible already says you don't even need to pray about it. I already know. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. You don't need to pray about that one. God has revealed his will to us. So that doesn't apply to where I'm about to take you. But the other thing I want you to understand, when it comes to discerning and knowing God's will for your life, I hope this is encouraging to somebody. God is not trying to trick you. God is not trying to confuse you. I've spoken to far too many Christians in my life who say, I've got this choice. Should I take this job or should I take that job? And they almost approach it like there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And if they get the wrong answer that God's just going to be like, ha ha, sucker, you chose the wrong one and just really shame them about it. I always ask them like, well, is one of these jobs like robbing a bank or working for the mafia? Like, no. Okay. Well, they're both good, productive, moral jobs. Then there is no wrong choice here. God will establish your steps. God is not trying to trick you. Have you prayed about it? Have you done these things I'm going to show you? But I just want you to understand that God is not trying to get you. And if there's any of that in your heart, I just ask you, fight against that lie. I want to give you five tests real quick so that you can hopefully know how to discern God's will of direction for your life as you seek to live out his will. The first one is the scripture test. Uh, the Bible is not a magic book. This is not like a Harry Potter spell book where you look at it and something floats out and you say, okay, yes, I need to take that job. It's not like that at all. But when you want to hear God's voice of direction in your life, you should read the book that he wrote so you know what his voice sounds like. I've had too many people say something to me like, well, God told me to blah, blah, blah. Like, That is completely self-serving. That is completely uh, unwise. That does not sound like something that God would say. I actually knew a man who God told him to divorce his wife, leave his kids, and run off with another woman. God told him. No, he didn't. So when you're trying to discern God's will for your life, make sure that you're in the scriptures, learning what his voice sounds like, learning how he speaks to his children, what his direction is like. And there may be times where a certain verse will just jump out and it will speak to your heart and God will give you some direction in that moment. The second test for knowing God's will is the community test. You know, we are individuals, which means we have one perspective and within that one perspective, we have blind spots. Encouraging? This is why God puts us into community. This is why when we make decisions, I would strongly encourage you not to go to those who know you best and say, here's the decision I've made, but go to them and say, here's the decision I'm wrestling through and here's what I'm thinking about. What do you see? What do you think? You have people in your life, I hope and pray you do. If not, we'd love to get you plugged into a community group and start that process. But you have people in your life who are also filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who also have life experience, who also can share wisdom with you. Let's include them in our life decisions as we discern God's will. Let's do these things in community. The third test, the prayer test. Sometimes we pray about things. We say, God, I prayed about it. Like I prayed about it one time for 30 seconds. I'm just waiting for my answer. You know what's interesting about God? If you go to Luke uh, chapter 11, where one of the two passages where Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer, he talks about how good it is to be persistent. Like keep asking, keep knocking, keep checking, keep bugging him. I know some of you have had fathers like, yeah, you keep asking, right? Like it's a different sort of a father that we have. Our heavenly father's like, no, please. Keep asking. You're not going to annoy him. You're not going to bother him. In fact, God is delighted and pleased when we keep coming to him in earnest prayer, seeking his will for our lives, seeking his will in all sorts of situations. I encourage you, church, be, be earnest in your prayer. Be persistent in your prayer. Number four is the conscience test. If you're trying to discern God's will, sometimes there's maybe not a, a black and white this is right, this is wrong. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I should do this. Sometimes it's, it's a matter of trusting conscience, trusting that part that God put into us that, that bears witness to what's the truth. If you're a Christian, you have been given not only a conscience, but you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. Sometimes you can say, man, there's not really a, a wrong choice here, but I just have this sense that this is kind of where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. It's okay to trust your conscience. Don't let the conscience be the trump card for all of the other ones, by the way but it's okay to say, yeah, I I believe that God's leading my heart in this direction. And number five is the wisdom test. Is this wise? Wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge that's applied. I could read a lot of medical textbooks. That doesn't mean you want me to do your surgery for you. Wisdom is not just knowledge. It's knowledge that's applied. It's knowledge that's lived out. So ask, is this decision, is this wise? All of these things, all of these ways are tools for us in our tool belt to battle against our own will rising up above seeking God's will. Just a moment of honesty, how many of you know in your life that your will needs to decrease and God's will needs to increase in your own life, okay? These are ways that we can, excuse me, we can fight against our will uprising above God. When we pray for God's will to be done, we are primarily talking about his moral will, his will of desire. We wanna obey him. But we're also talking about this will of guidance and and it it requires putting to death our self-centeredness. It requires uh, an understanding that it's not all about me. I wanna ask one more question about God's kingdom coming and God's will being done. And and this is an important one. Um, This is where we get a little bit more heart level here. Because we've talked about God being sovereign, talked about Jesus being in charge of everything, and God's will will be accomplished. It doesn't matter what we do, we can't mess up God's will. But then there's all sorts of questions about well, if God is sovereign, why would I even pray? If God's just in charge of everything, if God's in control of the whole universe, what's the purpose? What's the point in me praying? What happens, another question what happens if I don't pray? Did I just mess up God's will? Is God sitting there like, man, I really want to do something, but this person isn't praying and they've totally, you know, just blocked me here. What about those times in the Bible where it looks like God changes his mind? What about if we just pray really persistently? Can we override God's will? Sorry, God, I know you want to do this, but we prayed a lot. (laughs) Here's one that's maybe a little bit more sensitive. If, if, God, I've prayed a lot and I did pray earnestly and I did pray persistently and things did not turn out how I wanted them to turn out. Did I not pray rightly? Did I not pray good enough? Do I, am, I a, am I a bad prayer? Am I a bad Christian? What's going on there? I know, I know we're opening Pandora's box a little bit here because this is a huge question. This is a huge question. I want to say two things briefly on this subject. If God is sovereign, why should we pray? The first reason we should pray is this. Prayer is more than just requests. Remember that. Remember that prayer is more than just requests. No matter how our prayer requests were or weren't answered, God is still worthy of our praise. Amen? God still deserves all of our worship. God deserves all of the glory that we could possibly give to him. So our prayer lives need to be more than just requests. But the second thing I want us to understand, and this is a tension, we're going to feel this tension. On the one hand, God is absolutely 100% sovereign. He is in charge of everything. The Trinity never meets an emergency council. There is no hand wringing in heaven where Jesus is saying, oh my gosh, I didn't know they were going to do that. What are we going to do? This is out of our control. No, God is 100% sovereign and the Bible teaches that our prayers really do matter. They really do. Your prayer is not an exercise in futility. Your prayer is not a waste of time. Your prayer is not just something to give you something to do while God sovereignly does everything. No, your prayers really do matter. How are these two held together? That is above my pay grade, ladies and gentlemen. That's one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord. I don't know how those two things are held together, but I know that the Bible teaches both and we know that both are true. God is sovereign. God is in charge. God's will will be done. His purposes will be lived out. And in his sovereignty, he has chosen to use our prayers as one of the means by which he will accomplish his purposes. You thought about that? I like like this thought. Think about Jesus. Is there anybody that you can think of that has a better understanding of the sovereignty of God than Jesus? That whole second person of the Trinity, God become man thing, yeah, I think he knows about God's sovereignty. I think he knows how in charge God is. Yet at the same time, can you think of anybody who prayed more passionately and more earnestly than Jesus? Jesus is, is himself a model for us in this that he trusted in God's perfect plan. He trusted in the sovereignty of God, and yet he prayed more than anybody. So much so that the disciples said, Will you teach us how to pray like that? You're an amazing prayer. Prayer doesn't change God, but prayer does change things, and prayer does change us. Prayer does not change God, God is unchanging. No matter how many prayer meetings we scheduled the father is still going to send Jesus to return to earth one day, right? Even if we prayed against it all the time, like, God, please don't send Jesus back. He's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to send Jesus back. I'm not changing my plans on this one. Prayer doesn't change God because God is an unchanging God. God is an immutable God. He doesn't change like man does. But very, very clearly in the scripture, prayer absolutely does change things. See the difference? Prayer doesn't change God, but prayer does change things. And time and time again, we see examples in the scripture where situations and circumstances change because God's people hit their knees and they prayed. One of my favorite examples, you probably are thinking about this, is is Abraham. He's wrestling with God. You guys remember this time when he's praying and bargaining with God? God says, I'm gonna destroy Sodom. It's a wicked city. They're very, very evil there. I'm gonna just wipe them out. They deserve judgment. And, And Abraham goes, well, God, what if there was like, Fifty righteous people in that city and they're going to get destroyed un- unnecessarily. Would you like, would you think about sparing the city for 50 righteous people? And God goes, okay, Abraham, I would spare the city for 50 righteous people. Abraham goes, well, let's, let's, hold on a second, God. It's like he's at a used car dealership or something. like God, what if there was 40 people? And God goes, you drive a hard bargain. Yes, I, I would spare the city for 40. And they go back and forth all the way down to 10 people. Now, the bad news is they couldn't even find 10 righteous people and God still wiped the city out. But the point is that God allowed Abraham to come before him and really wrestle with God. Now, was God surprised? Did God not know what was going to happen? Did God himself change? No, but the situation did change for a while. And God used that opportunity to allow Lot and some of his family to escape from the city before judgment came. God uses you. God uses your prayers to affect and to change situations. He really does. And I am convinced that many of us don't believe that, at least not as much as we should. God doesn't change. The situations may change, but the thing that absolutely will change when we go before God in prayer is us. That will change. When you spend time with God in prayer, first of all, you become more like him. Your life is changed, you're shaped, you're growing to to align your will more closely with his will. So we stop praying prayers that aren't out of alignment with his will. We start praying prayers that are more in alignment with his will. I would tell you this, for me, the more time that I spend in prayer, especially the more time I spend in prayer about all the things that are broken in the world, I realize more and more how unqualified I am for the job of God. God. God, I I am bringing these situations to you. I don't know how you're going to sort this out. But your word says that when Christ returns, all things will be made new and all the wrongs will be righted. I don't know how you're going to do that, but I'm trusting you and I'm bringing this to you. That will change you. Amen? And we need that change. I like the way that John MacArthur kind of sums up this whole sovereignty of God versus our will. This quote is, is good. He says this, God is sovereign, but he is not independently deterministic. It means we're not robots. We're not puppets. Too many believers look at God's sovereignty in a fatalistic way, thinking, whatever will be, will be. A tension will always exist between God's sovereignty and man's will. Therefore, we should not try to resolve it by modifying what he says about either reality. God is sovereign, but he gives us choices. And it is in his sovereignty that he commands us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't have to resolve that tension. God is sovereign, He's in charge, and He really, really wants us to pray. Let me bring this to a close by just giving some practical tips on just putting this into practice in our lives. How should we live this out? The first one is this let's pray kingdom prayers. Let's pray big, audacious, bold, persistent kingdom prayers. Ask the question what's broken? What's out of joint? What's out of line? What is in need of God's redemptive and healing and restorative work? Both in your lives, but especially in the lives of others around you. Can you guys think of broken situations right now? I know you can. You have anybody that you know that's sick? Anybody you know that's struggling in their marriage? Anything, anything broken? Just name it. Let's bring those before God. The second thing is this, let's live kingdom lives. Let's not just pray kingdom prayers, but let's seek to live kingdom lives. God wants us to continue to to put that flesh to death by the power of the spirit to begin to live more and more in line with his will. You guys know that that means oftentimes sacrifice. We talked about, wouldn't it be great if this community just loved everybody and cared for everybody? Yeah, it's great until it's your wallet that has to get opened. It's your home that has to get opened to invite somebody to come live with you, right? It's hard. Let's seek to live kingdom lives. I just... For our church specifically, I just am so enthralled to think about the idea of Sound City Bible Church being known as a place where God's people take care of each other, where God's people take care of orphans and widows, like the book of James says. I love that thought. Let's not just pray kingdom prayers. Let's live kingdom lives. Number three, I would encourage you to uh, pray for rulers and authority figures. Like I said, Jesus is the king and his kingdom is coming. And until then, we live under the kingdoms of the earth. And so let's do what the scripture says to pray for those who are in charge. Not imprecatory prayers, not curses, but just, you know, pray for them. Pray that God would lead and guide and direct them. And number four, let us seek to fight self and put our flesh, our our me focus, our self-centeredness to put that to death by the spirit. God, your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. It starts with us. And as God grows that in our lives, we get to the joy of watching his kingdom grow throughout all the earth. I want to call us to response now. We're going to respond in a couple of ways as we usually do. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And I would say two things. Number one, if you're a guest, please don't feel like you're under any obligation to give. You're welcome if you'd like, but you don't have to. Number two, I would just say, this is one of the ways that God's kingdom, his purposes are carried out. That, that, um, Support the work of the ministry, this church and, and elsewhere. So uh, if the financial stewards would come forward and begin to collect the offering now, if you want information on how to text to give or how to give online, you can find that on your Connect card or you can give here in service. What I, what I want to say is while they're collecting this, let's talk about some discussion questions and some ways that uh, we can see this lived out practically in our lives. First question is this, what is the kingdom of God and how are we participants in his kingdom today? Number two, what is God's will kind of at a big picture level, explore the different senses of that term. And number three, related, what are some of the challenges of knowing God's will and how can we address them? And also related to that, number four, how can we grow in obedience to God's will? We need to grow in obedience to God's will and how can we help one another? That might be a really good opportunity for you to just share, hey, here's some things that God is really challenging me about in my life. Here's some ways that I need to grow in obedience. And then number five, lastly, a little little homework assignment, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. And how does Peter, read the scripture, how does Peter instruct us to live now that we're part of God's kingdom? I also want to invite us to be praying this week, not just talking, but to really pray, put these things into practice. So here's a couple of prayer points for us to chew on this week. Number one, pray for people in situations that are broken and ask for God's kingdom to come. And let me give you just two notes on that. Number one, uh, seek to be others-centered. It's not wrong to bring your own requests before God, but but try to think about those who you know who whose lives are really in, in need of God's redemptive work. And then number two, be discreet and don't give any place to gossip. Sometimes the prayer circle can be one of the best, uh, uh, best and by best, I mean worst, places where gossip happens. And so just be discreet. If, if you're sharing information that somebody else wouldn't necessarily want you to be sharing, uh, then that's probably gossip and you should be more general about it, okay? Uh, Number two, pray that Sound City Bible Church, pray for us that we would follow Jesus as he builds and spreads his kingdom, that God would use us to be a part of that kingdom spread. And then number three, uh, pray for those who are captured in the kingdom of darkness and pray that they would come to know Jesus and his kingdom. You have non-Christian friends and in God's kingdom, there won't be any more non-Christians. And so we wanna pray that God would bring them out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. We're going to respond in a minute with, with singing and, and celebrating. We're going to sing songs about our great King Jesus. We're going to respond with celebration of the Lord's table where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice to remember that, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, and that's where our redemption is found. But before we do either of those things, we're going to take a few minutes right now in service and we're going to pray. We'll leave these prayer points up on the screen and we're going to just take time right now to bring these requests before God. Anybody think of some things to pray about as I'm talking about things that are broken in the world? I sure hope so. Here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple weeks in a row. So if you're, if you're new or if uh, you maybe missed the last couple weeks, uh, you don't have to pray. Nobody's gonna force you to pray. Uh, you're also welcome to just sit individually and pray uh, if that's what would be uh, comfortable for you. That's totally okay. However, uh, if you would be so brave and be willing to maybe partner up with some people who are sitting nearby you, maybe you could gather in some groups of, three or four people, not big groups, just small groups and spend some time praying together as brothers and sisters. If, if some uh, really bold extrovert comes over and says, Hey, you want to join our prayer circle? You're welcome to say no to them in Christian love. That's fine. But I think it'd be good for us to spend some time together as brothers and sisters, lifting up these prayer requests to the Lord. And so we're going to do that. You guys ready? You guys looking around the room? I don't want to pray with that person. I'm going to pray with that person, right? You guys looking around right now? I'm going to count to three. On the count of three, we're going to spend some time in prayer right now in service. You guys ready for this? Here we go. One. You guys are resisting. Here we go. One, two, three. Let's spend some time praying together, church.